0: Let's open God's Word together. If you'll find James 1, I'll be preaching from down here this morning. We've, as you probably noted, had a microphone failure, and uh, that confirms the suspicion I've always had that we'd be a much better church if we just had a better mic. Um, (laughs) You're you're stuck with what you have for right now. At At least one more Lord's Day. James 1, verses 13 through 15 is our text. I'm like you. I have been glued to the television set and uh, with heartbroken and struggled deeply this week about what to preach. Um, then I remembered uh, a man that I've spent a good time studying, uh, Dr. Helmut Tielica, uh who was preaching during the Third Reich, a great, famous, and faithful Lutheran pastor. And as he was preaching a series of sermons, Allied bombs fell on the church and blew it to smithereens. And the church gathered the next Sunday in the ruins... And he just picked up where he left off last week, and he preached the Word of God. And we're going to do that today, and you're going to see how relevant, how timely is the Word of the Lord. Uh, We don't make this up. We don't arrange these things. God just speaks. And he's going to speak today to us a very timely and relevant message that will apply not only to us in our battles with temptation, but is a commentary on the world. And we want to see the world through the lenses of the Word of God. And this passage will help us do that as we read it again, uh, James 1, 13 through 15. This is now the second time that we're looking at this most relevant passage about temptation. And we've discovered that our Lord's brother, James, is very concerned about the people to whom he has written. And he's very concerned especially as they face various trials. And he's talked about those various trials in the opening verses. And his concern is that under affliction, while being tribulated, they would also fall into temptation. And so he turns to talk about temptation, having discussed trials. And he is especially concerned, as we unwind the fear, the godly fear that James has, he's concerned that while they're being tribulated, while God is testing them, that there will be the temptation to compromise their commitment to Christ. And we've seen as we've walked through this word together that with every trial and affliction, every trial that tests our faith, there also comes with it the possibility of temptation. And so every adversity and every trial contains within it the seeds of temptation. Uh, To spin that around, all temptations have a trial. And they go together. And so in this passage that we're about to read for the second time, James will will answer some questions we have about the relationship between trials and temptations. And then he will speak more explicitly about this thing called temptation. And he will deal with many practical issues. And he will speak to our hearts. And so let's read once again this paragraph from James 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And this is the blessed word of the Lord and may his name be praised, and may his people be edified. We're going to be taking an initial look at temptation with guidance from the brother of Jesus, this man named James. And the obvious thing, the the obvious statement he makes right out of the blocks this morning is that temptation is a matter of when. Look at the words in verse 13. When... He, when you, when we, are tempted. Temptation is, then, a definite reality. It is a certainty for every child of God without exception. And just like the Lord brings tests to us for our good, to strengthen our faith and to promote endurance, temptations also come, and they'll come to everyone who belongs to Christ. No exceptions allowed. We might be prone to believe that it's only the weak Christian who's tempted. And they are tempted. But every Christian, every saint, every believer is tempted. The strong and the weak, the mature and the immature, the the novice in Christ and the veteran in Christ, all of us are tempted. It is a matter of when, not if. No person is exempt from temptation. In fact... Experience would teach us that it is a continual daily event. We are always being tempted. In fact, maybe this morning, maybe already on your way to church, you've been tempted. Maybe as you sit there in the pew, listening to the word of the Lord read and proclaim, you are being tempted right now. It is a reality for all of us. The sun will never rise on a new day without also bringing with it many temptations. And not one believer, not the strongest believer, gets to coast along unhassled by the allure of evil and wickedness. No one flies at an altitude above temptation. It's always there. It's there at every stage of life. It's there in our youth. It's there in our middle years. It's there in our older years. Every season of life has its peculiar and unique temptations, temptation will never go away when we are tempted. Now, strangely, there's a word of encouragement buried there for us. Maybe you've already seen it. James is reminding us of all the saints whose stories we read in the inerrant word of God, those great men and women of the faith, the the heroes and the heroines of the biblical story, all of them, without exception, face trial, and they all face temptation. Sometimes they faced extreme temptations. Sometimes we read their stories and there were incredible enticements to disobey the Lord, and many did. And we read their stories. One of the great evidences of the truthfulness of the Word of God is that it tells the truth about its main characters. It doesn't shade their past. It tells us exactly what they did. And many times they fell grievously because they were tempted. And we read the biblical account and that story of temptation continues to resonate without end through every person's life we read of in the Bible. And we remember where that got started. It got started on the Bible's first pages. The Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve and a snake hanging in a tree and a catastrophic fall and the children of Adam and Eve, and the grandchildren of Adam and Eve, and the great-grandchildren of Adam and Eve, all the way up to the generation prior to the flood of Genesis 7. All of them continued to be tempted and continued to fall. We read in Genesis 6 some of the saddest words in all of the Bible. Prior to the great flood, We read these words, that the Lord saw as he gazed upon humanity, he saw the wickedness of man, that it was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then after the destruction of the world by the flood and the salvation of Noah and his family, guess what Noah did? He had no longer dried off his shoes. He had no longer landed the ark. And walked on dry land till he was tempted and he sinned grievously against the Lord. You remember the words that God spoke to Cain? Remember those words he spoke right before Cain murdered his brother? Remember the haunting warning the Lord spoke to Cain? He said, Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. And that is the reality of our existence on this side of Eden temptation is always there it's always crouching like a lion ready to seduce, ready to devour its prey and that will be the case for all of us until the end of time as we know it until we die or until the Lord returns and I'm encouraged by that I'm encouraged by that and so should you be encouraged we are not alone in our outward trials and we are certainly never alone in our temptations you see the encouragement? when? Paul would write To the Corinthians, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You are not alone. Everyone who's been redeemed has been placed in the fiery furnace of affliction and also in the crucible of temptation. And all the saints through all the ages, Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and David and the prophets and the disciples of Jesus and the Apostle Paul and even our sinless Savior All have faced temptation. It's a matter of when, and we are tempted together. We're the body of Christ. And what happens to one happens to all. If one is afflicted, we're all afflicted. If one is going through the crucible of pain and tribulation, we're all there with them. And if one is tempted, we are all tempted. And the church is not only tribulated, the church is tempted. We experience those things together as the new covenant people. It is a matter of when and not if. And what we need and what James will supply is the truth about temptation to save us from embracing false assumptions and misconceptions about what temptation is and where it comes from. And so then James says, not only it is a matter of when, but you need to be careful what you say when you're tempted. What do you say when you're tempted? What is your claim about the temptation experience? What conclusions do you draw about yourself and about God when you are tempted? We're going to see that James here perfectly anticipates what our first move always is. It goes almost without saying that our first move is to try to affix blame. And so he says, let no one say when he is tempted. I am being tempted by God. Our propensity is to make a false claim about temptation. The pressure of temptation comes, the heat of temptation comes, and our first move is to embrace a false view of temptation. And that's been the case since Adam and Eve. We might well conclude that God is tempting us. And that's very flawed. That's bad reasoning and bad Theology. But you can see how we get there, right? Because we've spent 12 verses. James has just spent 12 verses telling us that God brings, Tim, rather, God brings testing. We, we know that God is sovereign over all things. He brings testing. He tests our faith to produce endurance. He's using trials and, and, and adversities to make us strong and to increase our love for Him. We might naturally think that since He does all that, since He is the sovereign Lord, since He ordains all that comes to pass, then He must be. He must be the one tempting us. And James says, Be careful what you say, When you are tempted, if you lack godly wisdom, you might conclude that God has created those evil impulses. You might conclude that it is the Lord who is responsible for my sins. The Lutheran commentator R.C.H. Linsky suggests that many of us might raise these questions. Did God not make us with bodily appetites? I mean, did he not create sexuality? Did he not make so many things attractive to us? Does he not place us dangerously close to them? Isn't it the Lord's fault? We might be thinking that. And here James exposes that move, that blame-shifting move. He exposes that as one of the greatest evidences of our spiritual corruption, one that we trace all the way back to Adam and Eve, when we are tempted, when we succumb to it, there's this immediate pushback. It can't be my fault. All of us, preacher included, all of us want to offload the responsibility to someone else or something else. We want someone or something outside of us to take the blame for what's going on in our experience of temptation. And so we confuse the trial with the temptation. We misread, we misunderstand the Lord's purpose in our time of testing. We say it's his fault when we succumb. We say, oh, the Lord left me no choice. And yet here is a direct, explicit command from the brother of Jesus. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Here is a stern rebuke against our predisposition to assign the blame elsewhere, in our Father's direction. That's a dangerous thing to do. So here's this statement James makes, this statement we need to hold on to, that God does not tempt anyone. The blame, as James would say, could not be passed. Whatever else we learn about temptation, and we're going to be spending a couple of more Sundays here, whatever else we might learn we're going to learn that the responsibility and blame cannot be passed on to our Father or anyone else for that matter. Now, as we read this passage, and maybe it happened to you this morning, maybe you haven't read this passage in a while, and as we read it together, you you notice something that wasn't there that you expected to be there. James is talking about temptation, and he's talking about succumbing to it and sinning against the Lord, and yet there's something here that is obvious by its absence. What is that? There is no mention of Satan in this passage. He is going to expose the source of evil. That's next Sunday if you come back. And in this passage, there's not the first mention of Satan. There's no mention of demons. There's no mention of the principalities and powers of wickedness at work in the world. There's no mention of other sinners. There's no mention, there's no reference to our circumstances or our environment. The blame is elsewhere. But until we get there next week, let's just think about where we are right now. Stop and consider this. To lay the blame for temptation and sin on something outside of us is essentially to lay the blame on God. If I say that the circumstances God put me in caused me to sin, am I not then essentially saying God caused my temptations? And so James will not permit us to blame the circumstances as the cause for evil. And if I say it's somebody else's fault, am I not saying exactly the same thing that God is to blame? Am I not doing what this passage forbids me to do? We're simply not permitted to blame the Lord or the devil or our environment or our circumstances or anything else for our sins. They belong to us. The blame and the cause of temptation is somewhere else, somewhere very close indeed. Now let's put our biblical glasses on and let's look at the world. This passage teaches us that our hearts are the way they are and the world is the way they is, way it is because of something inside each of us. Now, we're going to get a very good look at that in verses 14, 15, and 16 next Lord's Day. But my heart is the way it is, and your heart is the way it is, and our world is the way it is because of something inside each of us. We're all infected with it. And then we could say that our determination, and it's a worldwide phenomenon, that our determination to assign blame elsewhere to others, to God, that is the cause of all human conflicts. And you see it happening in the Garden of Eden. The first marriage, first marriage ever in humanity gets soured by the fact that they sinned against the Lord and they turn their guns on each other. Eve blames the serpent. Adam blames the woman. And that's the story of Humanity. All broken relationships, all broken homes, all fractured communities, all divided nations have their source there. Because it's our number one job to blame somebody else. And when we do that, James would say we're blaming God. All murders and acts of violence, all wars... All crimes, all complaints, all rumors, all gossip, all of it, all of it begins in me and in you. It is our desire to offload responsibility and blame. And nothing, nothing will change until we confess that. If we're waiting on someone else to apologize or someone else to repent, then healing will never come. It will never come. There will be no peace in your home. There will be no peace in your marriage. There will be no peace in your community or this church or this nation or this world until we look in the mirror and repent of our sins and meet each other at the cross. There is no one on this earth without blame. We are the cause of all the world's evils. We, together. There is no them. And if I sit in the comfort of my living room and I gaze out at humanity and I'm angry at them for what they're doing, then I don't get it. Because that's my heart. The spirit of murder lives in me. The spirit of racism lives in me. The spirit of hatred lives in me. The spirit of divisiveness lives in me. All of it is there in microcosm, in my heart. And as long as I'm making you the problem, or the government, or the president, or the Congress, or some institution, as long as that's the problem, we will never find the grace of God. It is me. The sins of the world are my sins and your sins. And this is what James is saying. Don't you dare blame God. Don't you dare blame your neighbor. Don't you blame the devil. Don't you blame your environment. Don't you blame your daddy or your school teacher or your football coach. You look in the mirror. And strangely, as harsh as that sounds, there is mercy and healing there. There is grace there. Let no one say, I'm being tempted by God. Now, why, why and how can James say to us so emphatically? That God is not the source of our temptations. We'll, we'll look with me at verse thirteen. God cannot be tempted with evil. So we learn something about the nature of God here. It is impossible for God to be tempted. In fact, the word James uses could be translated: God is untemptable. He is holy and he is pure. The Word says he dwells in unapproachable light. The word says, in him is no darkness at all. One scholar has said that God, our God, is of such unmixed holiness that it is impossible for him to be enticed to plot evil against us. Another scholar has said, our God and Father who is pure and lovely, who is holy, is unversed in evil. He has no experience in trafficking evil. And then James makes another direct statement about our God. He himself tempts no one. The one who is of unmixed holiness is also the one of unmixed goodness. He would never harm his children. He would never tempt them. There is never an ulterior motive with God in his dealings with us. He is of infinite goodness, and he forbids. He forbids that anything coming from his heart, from his being, would ever do us hurt. So there you have it. Temptation does not come from God. And he cannot be blamed. He will say in verse 16, and we're not going to go there today, but he will say in verse 16, every good gift coming down from heaven comes from the Father of lights, and with him there is no stellar parallax, literally. There is no change. There is no change. Now, that's a hard truth to embrace, isn't it? Some of you are thinking ahead. And the pages of the Bible are flipping over in your mind, and you're coming to some places that seem to contradict the statement James has just made, that God never tempts anyone. And you're thinking about some events where it sure seems like he did. Maybe your mind this morning has raced to Genesis 22. There's that incredible story of God taking Abraham, leading him out to Mount Moriah, son Isaac in tow, the son of promise, and God ordering the patriarch to sacrifice his son on the altar. Is that not a wicked thing to command? the murder of the innocent, child sacrifice. The pagan deities that Abraham forsook when he followed the Lord, they demanded child sacrifice, and now the Lord is telling the patriarch, this new covenant man, to take the son of promise and do what the pagans do, put him on the altar and kill him. Is that not an evil thing? And then some of you are thinking about the teachings of Jesus, the brother of James. And in the great prayer, the great Lord's Prayer, there's that petition, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Do these not militate against what James is saying here? What about those? What about Abraham? Well, the Lord did put Abraham to the test, the most extreme test ordering him to sacrifice the child of promise. And on the surface, it appears to be very contradictory to everything the Lord teaches. It seems to violate everything the Lord had revealed about the sacredness of human life. And again, the actions suggested, the actions commanded seem to parallel those actions that you would find in pagan religions. Indeed, it was a very very severe test of Abraham's faith. But, But as we read the inerrant word of God... We know what's going on, don't we? We know the Lord's intent, and we know what the Lord did. We know that this was a test and not a temptation. We know that the Lord, because of his promise, because of what was going to happen, even because of what Abraham suggests as he's about to climb the mountain with his son, he says to his attendants, the lad and I will be back. We know that Isaac's life was never in danger. The father's knife would never touch him. The Lord would provide the ram, the sacrifice, the correct sacrifice for the moment. The Lord was not baiting Abraham. He was not seducing Abraham into doing something evil. He was testing and proving and exposing Abraham's love and Abraham's faith. And his love was proven. His faith was revealed. And he is the father of all who believe in Jesus Christ. That was an extreme test, but no temptation. And good came of it. And you're here because the ram was supplied. what about what Jesus said in his prayer when he gave us the very language to use in prayer? What about that? According to our Lord, we're to ask our Father to not lead us into temptation. Now, if that's all we had, there would be even more questions about what Jesus meant, but that's not all that we have. We have to read the entire, the entire petition But yet, as we initially look at these words, it seems to beg the question, does the Lord lead his people into temptation sometimes? And if so, aren't we then commanded here to pray that he will not do that, that he will not not tempt us, that he will not uh, seduce us or bait us or entice us? Because if the answer is yes, if the answer is the Lord does sometimes do that, then he is not the God of the Bible. For to tempt someone is to do them evil. It is an evil and wicked thing to tempt. But this isn't all the Lord says. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. And there's the secret, there's the answer. This is not the prayer that God would refrain from tempting us, that He, that he really wants to, and we need to beg Him not to. That, that is exactly the, 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 the thing that's not being taught here. What is being taught is that it is our tendency to wander off the trail. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is a prayer that in His loving providence, God would save us from our own tendency to wander away from Him. To pray, lead me not into temptation, is to appeal to His guidance that as I walk the way He leads, that He would deliver me from all my self-imposed detours. You see, the first line... Lead me not into temptation is explained by the second line, deliver me from evil. You can rest assured that nowhere in the Bible nowhere in history does God tempt us. The Word of God does not teach that. And experience could never truly bear that out. He never harms those whom He loves. He is not the source of our temptations. He is good and holy. His purposes are good and holy and constructive. He is always designing circumstances for our growth, our good, the increase of Christian virtue, and specifically our maturity in steadfastness. And so he never, ever tempts anyone. And if I'm tempted and if I'm falling, the blame blame lies elsewhere. There's a lot more we want to consider, but for the moment, let's together as a church family take hold of what James has just taught us. Let's think about it. Let's let it sink in. Let the Word of God do its work. What do you say when you're tempted? What do you say when you fall into sin? What's your first move? Let me gently ask you, as a fellow traveler, have you been blaming God all along for your troubles? Are you angry at Him? Are you angry at the Lord for how your life is going? Are you angry at the Lord for the sins you've committed Are you upset at Him because of the brokenness of your life or the consequences of your sins that you are living in today? Are you angry at God? Are you you secretly betraying a belief that He is responsible? Are you looking out at the world with selfish anger? Are you angry at those sinners for wrecking your world, for wrecking your country? are wrecking your neighborhood or your place of employment? Are you angry at them? Are you waiting on somebody else to repent and apologize? Are you believing the popular myth that it's the demon's fault? Or that it's all about Satan? Do you believe that God has put you in a no-win situation where your only option is to disobey? Do you secretly believe that? If your answer is yes, you're in very good company because we've all done that. We've all felt those emotions. We've all made those conclusions. We've all been tempted and are being tempted to pass the buck when it comes to our temptations and sins. But the brother of Jesus will not let us get away with that. He is telling us that our Father can always be trusted. He can always be trusted to be good. His testing is never designed to lead us into sin. He will never, ever, never, ever Place us in a situation where our only option is sin. So let's change what we say when we're tempted. Let's change what we say when we fall. Let us say, Lead me not into temptation, deliver me from evil. Forgive me. I am guilty. I have sinned. And those are words that lead to healing and salvation. And when that change in our language has occurred, when that change in our hearts has occurred, then we will be blessed. The blessing of God will fall on us. Even in the fires of adversity and temptation, God's people will be unified. Marriages will find greater harmony and peace. Relationships will flourish. And some of the greatest problems that the fall has given us will find a solution in the cross of Jesus Christ where sinners gather to confess their sins. Let's pray together.